You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast recorded on the lands of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, to whose elders, past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm excited to welcome Dr Helen Kelly. Helen is a school wellbeing expert, author, consultant, speaker and researcher. She led international schools in Asia and Europe until she retired from her work as a principal in 2020. She has been conducting research in the field of educator wellbeing for almost a decade. Prior to becoming an educator, she spent 10 years as a lawyer in the field of workplace health and safety. And Helen's first book, School Leaders Matter, Preventing Burnout, Managing Stress and Improving Wellbeing, was published in February of this year. Welcome, Helen. Thank you for having me, Deb. I've been looking forward to it. It's my pleasure. So let's start the conversation. And the first question is really around, I suppose, all that varied and diverse experience that you have. So as a researcher, a previous principal and that legal background, First thing I'm wondering is really how do you draw all those things together in the work that you're now doing in educator wellbeing? Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, it it kind of has helped me to realise my passion for workplace wellbeing. And it took me a while to draw those links together, you know, that what I'm doing now actually links right back to my first career in the early 1990s. That shows how old I am, doesn't it? Really, the way that I'm bringing that together is this emphasis upon evidence-based practices. And well-being can be sometimes quite a nebulous or a kind of woohoo kind of thing. And really, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in concrete, rigorous, scientific research that shows us the experience of staff working in schools how we've got there, you know, why this happens and strategies and tools that we can use to improve the situation. Um, So my kind of legal mind makes me go to that rigorous and evidence-based approach. And also then I suppose that what's actually going to make the difference as well, which I think is why I'm so interested in some of the work that you've done, because it is that not just how do we feel about wellbeing, but what is evidence and research saying? And then what might we actually do? Because I'm a principal in a school and that that is just such an area of complexity to grapple with around what that might look like in a school in a time when there's lots of flexible working arrangements in lots of places that are difficult within a school environment too. Yeah, absolutely. If we're talking about educator wellbeing, stress and burnout and what you call the burnout continuum, what does research tell us about those things? Research tells us that actually burnout isn't just an on-off switch. Burnout is a continuum and this has 30 odd years worth of research behind it. And that all employees, regardless of where they work or what, you know, what um, career they have, are on this continuum. And the continuum at one end is what we call engaged. And that's where we want everybody to remain. And that means that we're not exhausted and we're not cynical about our work. We feel fully committed and we're effective. And then what happens is as we start to experience work-related stress and the demands that we're experiencing exceed our capacity to recover effectively, uh, we start to move along that continuum. And at the other end of the continuum is burnout. But in between, there are three other profiles. There is the profile where we're exhausted. Then we have a profile called disengaged, which is uh, where we don't feel the same about our work anymore. 
we start to feel a little bit cynical um, and we don't feel as committed and then we become ineffective. And when all three of those are in place, that's when we're experiencing a full burnout. But, you know, I'm not trying to suggest for one minute that everyone in schools is burning out. But what we're trying to do and what I'm trying to do through my work is to avoid people moving along that continuum towards burnout. What we know is it's not a one way journey, you know, that we can move towards and we can come back again. And what's important and the, the way I support schools and individuals is, first of all, to recognise when we're starting to move along that continuum, but also what we can do to bring us back because, it, you know, we don't have to move all the way to burnout. And I think there's almost a systemic exhaustion in the profession, you know, after recent years and just that notion of workload and work demands. And even from a school's point of view, what's the capacity of a school or an education system to pull some of those demands back is a really interesting challenge. Do you think that educator wellbeing is different to other professions' wellbeing? Yes, there are other professions that are similar. I think in the past, we've been very keen to acknowledge the emotional demands and the workload demands of those that work in healthcare, for example, or you know those that work in psychological support services, even firefighters. But it's only been in recent years that we've started to acknowledge that the people work that we do in schools can be just as demanding. And there's been, you know, up until about 20 years ago, the work was primarily around workload, you know, how much stuff we have to do, the quantitative work. And in the last 20 years, we've started to understand a lot more about the emotion work that we do in schools and the impact that that has on us as individuals and as teams. Um, and I th so I think there are parallels um, in other people caring professions, but it, what's happening in schools is quite different to, let's say, your average office work. And I think also because teaching is one of those caring professions, but maybe not in the way that other professions have been acknowledged as such, there's probably different or lesser supports in place for teachers in terms of that emotional labour and that um, the sort of people work that you're talking about. Absolutely. And I think what we fail to acknowledge, and we know we do acknowledge this in other professions, it isn't just about, you know, for example, um, let's say a nurse working in a hospital, it isn't just about the caring and the emotion work that's involved in um, working with patients. It's about the emotion work involved in working with colleagues. And what, what I know from the research I've done, which is borne out by the research of others, is that actually, particularly for school leaders um, who might have less direct contact with students, actually the emotion work is all around the work that they do with adults um, so senior leadership colleagues, teaching staff and parents to some extent. And um, because it's quite a different component, that, that adult emotion work, emotional labour, yes, historically we haven't had anything in place. But even in relation to the work that teachers do with their students, we don't have, you know, what we call supervision now, which, you know, or psychological support or counselling or some kind of debrief that we have in hospitals or those that work um, in psychological services, for example, that's built into the system. We don't have anything like that. We're just starting to use supervision a bit more. And some of the schools I'm working with in London, staff have access to that. Um, it's a bit limited, but that's all very new. We've not really had that in place, no. Yeah, and you're reminding me of the fact that schools are these communities, big communities sometimes, 
and that things happen in people's lives in their, those communities and schools are a slice of society really. So the kinds of things that you're going to see in society, whether that's people going through difficult times, through trauma, through all kinds of things that they need to be supported through, those are things that schools are going to see in students, in families and in their staff. And so there is potentially that just layer upon layer of people being supported but then who's supporting the supporters and so on. Absolutely. And, you know, you go into working in schools in the first place because you're a particular kind of person. You know, you're an empathetic, compassionate individual and that can make you more vulnerable to um, experiencing compassion, what used to be called compassion fatigue, but is now compassion stress injury. And, you know, also experiencing the fallout from emotional labour you know, emotional labour is all about when we suppress our real feelings or we pretend feelings that we don't feel. And the research going back to the early 1970s shows how that leads to emotional exhaustion and can be a component of burnout. And of course, in schools, we're doing that all the time, aren't we? You know, we're, we're seeing things where, um, you know, a parent comes in to meet us, they're very angry and we have to suppress that or the way that we feel towards our students sometimes who can be very challenging with behavior we have to push those feelings down um, and the research shows that can be very damaging so you know and you're right we see all we see everything that goes on in life happens in a school and you talk about six areas on which we should focus relating to well-being community workload control fairness rewards and values and I think schools are definitely communities. That's definitely something that we feel and it's important to us. But that's also the complexity of that ecosystem also comes in there. But how do those kind of factors play out in our well-being or our lack of well-being? So this research comes from uh, Maslach and Leiter. They're the foremost researchers in the world into burnout and they've worked in thousands of workplaces with hundreds of thousands of individuals over the last 30 years maybe. And what they found is that, first of all, I think it's important to say that burnout is primarily a condition of the workplace. It is not a condition of the individual. You know, there are behaviours that we can engage in that will make us more vulnerable to burnout, but really it's a contextual and situational thing. It's not an individual failing. And what they have found is there are six areas of work life that contribute to burnout and any you know if you're experiencing mismatch between what you need as an individual and what you're receiving from the workplace in those six areas that you just mentioned that can move you along that burnout continuum so what we know is that the the single biggest factor is wouldn't be surprising is is workload the amount of work we have to do but also this emotional workload and what we know is that the work in schools has changed a lot and what's being asked of people in schools now is much more than it used to be 50 years ago and it's changed again since the pandemic there's up-to-date research just coming in from the UK this week to show that um, 60% of educators in schools feel that they're supporting the emotional well-being of their students and their colleagues more than they were before the pandemic and about a third of those people feel unprepared for it. And 80% of school leaders and 70% of teachers feel that's impacting their well-being. So that comes in next into that community. The community area of work life is actually the single biggest factor for school leaders in making them vulnerable 
to burnout. And what we know about those, the quality of those relationships is that if the quality of relationships within our school community are not as we need them to be, that can have a significant impact on our well-being. But also what we know is that if we work in a supportive community that's providing everything we need, that can actually be protective against the other five factors. And then the third most common um, that moves us along that burnout continuum is control. And that's about having autonomy over our work. So that's about having some kind of say in our day-to-day work. And what we find is that teaching assistants, for example, classroom support staff, um, don't have much. And that can make them vulnerable to burnout. Um, But it's also about having a say in the way that the school is run in the decision-making process and feeling that we're working in a collaborative environment rather than a top-down approach. And, you know, we see in some systems in particular um, around the world a very top-down leadership approach where staff are not involved enough and um, that can have a huge factor. So those are the three most important. I mean, I'm just thinking about that complexity of the school community and you've said that, um, you know, it's kind of that misalignment between what the individual needs and what's being provided. But is there also a continuum of, of individual needs? So does a workplace have to sort of understand that different people might need different things and provide a suite of supports or options for them as well? Absolutely. So the one thing that you learn when you work in the workplace wellbeing field is that there is never a one-size-fits-all approach. First of all, every school is different, but also every individual in every school is different and what they need is different. So the first thing that you have to do, and you know, I've developed this strategic framework for working with schools, the first thing that, um, well, not the first thing, but one of the first things that you need to do is find out what's going on, gain insights, gather data. What are the issues in our school? And if you're interested in community, what you're really interested in there is the workplace culture. And we talk a lot, don't we, about school culture, and that's primarily involving students, but actually the culture of the workplace is what dictates the quality of the community. And so we need to ask questions and find out, you know, are people experiencing a sense of belonging? Do they feel valued and respected? Do they feel recognised and appreciated? You know, are the interactions between colleagues civil and respectful? And, you know, finding out um, this information will give us an idea of where to start with the whole community but then of course absolutely individuals will need different things and so we need to provide a whole range of interventions to meet the needs and that makes it sound sound overly complex but it really is this framework is about chunking it up and going one step at a time. And if you were to walk into a school what do you think you might see in here if the workplace culture was a good one? Yeah, that's really hard to say. I'm asked that often. And actually, you know, it's about those micro moments, the relational micro moments, you know. So it's easy to say, you know, a very simple thing in a school that I worked with um, at the very beginning on the very first day of the school year last year, uh, this school year in, in September in London. And people told me that after I came in for the first workshop, suddenly people started saying hello to each other as they passed each other in the corridor. You know, something simple like that, feeling acknowledged, 
feeling seen, mm. you know, s simple things like that. People going to the staff room or the staff lunchroom and having conversations about things that are not connected with work. Just that feeling, feeling that you belong. So, for example, another thing that taxes individuals quite a lot in schools is providing opportunities for people to come together outside of the workplace, but they need to meet the needs of all the different cultures. And some schools I work with tell me that their social events are very much built around drinking and going to the pub, and some people feel marginalised by that. So in a school where we have a good workplace culture, we have opportunities for people to come together in all kinds of ways outside of school. And that helps to build those bonds and that sense of belonging in school, you know, but it really is, you know it when you see it. And also when you go into a school and it's not there, you mm. know it, you feel it. And so what are some of the other things schools can do? Because as you say, culture and wellbeing are both these kind of nebulous things and there's, uh, you know, sort of probably tokenistic things schools can do, which are not necessarily bad like everyone likes a nice morning tea or a free yoga class or something those things are nice to have but they're not going to fix things like workload and sense of value and those kind of things so if I'm thinking quite practically about okay as a school I'm going to seek to understand where my people are at uh, but what are the kinds of levers I can pull or the kinds of things I might be able to practically do to start to turn that flywheel of of change in terms of a, a better well-being workplace culture? Yeah, well, the first stage in the strategic framework I've developed is about building a well-being team. Because what's really important when you set out on this journey, Deb, you know, to put in place those interventions and pull those levers is that it needs to be a collaborative process. If people feel that it's something that leadership are doing to them, it's going to be less successful. So putting together a well-being team with representation from all groups within the staff, but preferably all stakeholder groups. Not all schools will be there. They won't feel that they're confident enough yet to have staff students and parents all collaborating over staff well-being but that's what you're aiming for and once you've got that in place the next stage would be providing some education for stakeholder groups about why this is important because we have to lay those foundations first we can't just go straight into pulling levers and putting in place interventions mm. we need to have team to guide it and we need everyone in the community to understand why this is important and there's lots of data out there to show how leader and staff well-being connects directly to student outcomes so I think that's important then we go into our collecting data so we look at what data we've already got what kind of data do we need once we've got that data that get it, it's important to analyze that data and to figure out what story it's telling us and i think the biggest mistake most schools make apart from just being tokenistic is that they have a school well-being staff well-being survey or they collect data in some other form and then they don't do anything with it often because they're overwhelmed by it or they don't know what to do next so it's about analyzing that data figuring out what it's telling us and what should our priorities be and it's that well-being team that are going to be doing this together um, and then once we've done that then we can start to set goals and we can start to put in place interventions and I think for any school the first round of interventions if it hasn't already been done are going to be around workload and workload issues are different in every school 
the UK government, for example, has a whole pack on workload and it identifies six or seven areas of, of workload that's, that are commonly issues in schools that schools should work through. But it really is about identifying what the workload issues are and also being realistic about what can be achieved within the school's budget, within the staffing levels, but coming together and being collaborative about how can we be smart about this? How can we um, you know, come up with some clever and creative ways? What can we get rid of? What don't we need to do? What, what are we doing? Because we've always done it that way, but actually what we get from it is not sufficient reward for the amount of hard work that goes into it. You know, so I think that um, that that's that's a starting point for any school if they haven't already done um, a workload survey to find out which areas are the most demanding, then to put in place some workload, what we call interventions. So it's definitely collaborative with a number of people. I think that's really important, that point you made about not, well, we've seen wellbeing is an issue, so leadership's going to do some wellbeing things to you on your behalf. You're welcome. Uh, but actually working with people from a number of different areas and also that it's context dependent that what might work at my school might not work at the school down the road or overseas or whatever that might be absolutely and using data but if you're generating data then then make sure you do something with the information absolutely there's no point doing your well-being survey if if you then put it in a drawer till the next year and do another well-being survey yeah and what you want in your well-being survey or surveys if you do you know short ones across the year which is preferable because if you do one once a year that might be a bad time but it's really important that you get a high participation rate you know th there's no point in putting a survey in place and only 30 percent of staff take part and the way to guarantee one of the ways to guarantee a high participation rate is to make sure that the previous year's survey was acted upon mm -hmm. so the results were shared with staff no matter how you know bad they were and no matter how badly leadership think they might reflect upon them that the results were shared and then together we figured out how we might act on those results because if you have you know one or two years of a survey and you don't share the results and you don't do anything with the data then by the time you come to the third year your participation rate will be so low that the data will be pretty much ineffective you know it's not telling you the story so absolutely and in the work you've done with schools, what are some of the best or coolest things that you've seen a school do? Like, are there any really creative things that particular schools have come up with and said, oh, this is something for our staff, so this is something we're going to bring into life? One of the most effective ways of improving a workplace culture is by developing your middle leadership team. So leaders are the carriers of the culture. Although we all need to take responsibility for the workplace culture and understand it's a shared responsibility, really leaders are the carriers of the culture and the research shows that. But the middle leadership team, I think, is often forgotten its importance um, to the way that it can change that workplace culture, make it more positive, I think is absolutely crucial so providing the middle leadership team with sufficient training raising the capacity of the middle leadership team to help them to deal with that emotion work that people work because middle leaders in my experience see themselves really as managers and they're involved much more in the transactional day-to-day -day running of the school 
Whereas actually the biggest change that we can make to the quality of that community is to give them the skills to be able to do the emotion work with their teams, to bring out the best in them, to motivate them, to create that sense of belonging, that recognition, um, that appreciation, all the things that I talked about earlier. And so some of the most effective work that I've done with schools in the last few years is working directly with those middle leadership teams to upskill them in these areas. And also, uh, you know, that involves workshops, but it also involves one-to-one coaching with middle leaders um, around having these conversations, you know, having courageous conversations with staff, but also how we bring out the best, how we help everyone to feel that they belong, how we create a collaborative environment within our teams so that everyone, every member of staff is feeling um, that sense of belonging and is bringing their best to the workplace every day. So I really think if I was going to recommend one thing to schools, it's really think about how you're training and using your middle leadership team and providing with them with the skills that they need to do the emotion work. And of course, also embedded in that is your senior leaders need to have those skills too. And often in schools, senior leaders don't. So again, it's about providing, you know, capacity building around those emotion, emotional leadership. And so you're building the skill and capacity of that, of, the, of a lot of people in your organisation to do that relational people work so that they have the skill themselves to take that on and to be effective, but also then that has ripple effects across the organisation to those people who are feeling hopefully more supported and it probably changes the way people do speak to each other and, and engage with one another. It changes everything. You know, we can turn a toxic workplace environment into a positive workplace environment actually more quickly than you would imagine, certainly over a period of two years. But in the first year, we will start to see a significant difference and um, it has an enormous impact. Mm, that's nice to hear. The, the previous episode was on coaching, coaching culture. So this is um, come, sort of coming in nicely with some of the other things that I've been thinking about due to guests on this podcast. But I heard you actually on a different podcast and I actually listened to it twice because I listened to it once and then I started it from the beginning again and listened to it again. And I think personally what really resonated with me was the idea that you talked about of work recovery you know, so as an individual rather than I suppose as a school leader, like yep. the concept of yep. work recovery. And there was a couple of things you said. One was around micro recoveries, trying to find frequent recoveries. And you said something like the benefits of the weekend last until Tuesday. So you need to find yeah. times other than the weekend to recover from your work. I guess I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that because that really personally resonated as a challenge for busy educators. Yeah, I mean, I just want to refer back to put this in a context to a couple of things I've already mentioned. You know, first of all, when we to take this strategic approach and we start looking at putting interventions in place in the work, workplace wellbeing field, we talk about three kinds of interventions. The first are primary interventions, and they're the ones that we've already talked about today, Deb. They're the ones that are at the organisational level. And then at the other end, we have the tertiary interventions, which are what we do when someone's already become ill you know, so what then they're probably already off work. And then the middle one is secondary interventions. And that's where we provide information and support so that individuals can better manage their stress. So we're not looking at treating the cause of stress, 
which is what primary does. We're looking at how we can manage that stress. And the other thing that I already referred to was this work demands versus work recovery. So the organisational level, the primary interventions, they deal with the work demands, the six areas that we talked about, workload, community, control, those. But we also have work recovery. And what we know from the research is that it starts to go badly wrong for individuals when they don't just have too much in the way of work demands, but they're unable to put in place effective work recovery. And again, there's some great research in the field on this. So what we know is that effective work recovery consists of four work recovery experiences during our non-work time. And the first one is psychological detachment. So that's about switching off, not just not doing work, but not thinking about work. And this is the single most important. And also all the research shows that this is the one that people working in schools find the most difficult. We know, for example, that if we have an emotional interaction with an individual at school during the day, and then we go home and we ruminate on that, that the rumination is more damaging to our health than the initial confrontation. Excessive rumination in individuals is linked to cardiovascular disease. It's also linked to poor sleep. And what we know is that sleep and stress are in a cycle. You know, they're in a loop. So when we're more stressed, we don't sleep well. And when we don't sleep well, we're more stressed. So if we can stop ruminating and, you know, kind of break that cycle, it's going to be very, very effective. So finding ways to switch off, putting better work, homework barriers in place um, and having some structures in place to make sure that we're having proper time to not think about work is valuable. The second one is relaxation. Now, we all think we know what relaxation is, but actually often us people that work in schools are very bad at it. And, you know, re the relaxation response is the opposite of the stress response. So we need to be doing things that help our parasympathetic nervous system to activate so that we start to bring down all those stress hormones and they're replaced with our happy hormones. And there's lots of research to show that knitting and gardening and having a pet and all kinds of everyday activities, as well as those things that we think of as being more intentional to relieve stress, like meditation and relaxation, breathing. Um, but what the research shows there is that exercising in nature is probably the single most effective thing that you can do for relaxation. So the third experience is control. So this is about having control over how you spend your non-work time. And if you are a busy parent or you care for elderly parents or something similar, you're probably not going to have much choice over how you spend your non-work time. So it's really important that you do. And the final one, which is the one that surprises people the most, is called mastery experiences. And this is where we're experiencing a sense of accomplishment in our free time um, that's not connected with our work. So it could be playing a musical instrument, learning a language, you know, uh, running a marathon faster than you ran it last year or anything that comes becomes progressively more difficult. And as you've mentioned, what the research shows is that we need to be engaging in these four experiences regularly and frequently. So in schools, there's a great tendency to push on through to the next holiday, isn't there? 
you know, oh, there's only three weeks to the holiday. I'll work myself into the ground because I can recover then. And what the research shows is that the holiday lasts about two weeks. You know, the benefit, even if the holiday has been a six week long break. So it's, it's not good enough to push through to the holiday. The benefit of the weekend lasts until Tuesday. So it's not enough to push through to the weekend. So what we need to be doing is experiencing these four mastery, these four um, work recovery experiences in the holidays. And we're all quite good at that, my research shows. At weekends, every weekend, for at least one day, switching off completely. And then at least two or three evenings every week. And then this is the big one that people find the hardest. And I was terrible at this is we need to be trying to experience some of them during the working day. I know. So my record was 12 meetings starting at quarter to seven in the morning and finishing at 6 p.m. And I didn't have time to go to the bathroom or drink water or eat. And that was, you know, not a typical day, but that was my worst day. And what the research shows us is that firstly, people that work in schools are very bad at taking breaks. But that if we take micro breaks of only 40 seconds and we take several of those during the day, that can have a huge benefit for our well-being. So there are actually concrete things aside from looking at the work demands and that strategic framework. There are concrete things that individuals can do to maximise their well-being and enable them to recover more effectively in their non-work time that everyone should be doing. I mean, I find all of that really fascinating and very challenging. You know, when you talk about rumination and switching off, you know, we talked earlier about teaching being, being a caring profession and the emotional work of it and the fact that your day might include lots of unsolved or complex human um, problems and issues and things that you've potentially taken on board or been involved in and then to go home and say, well, I'm switching that off now. I think that you talked about boundaries between work and home and so on. Yeah. And then that notion of relaxation. Yeah. What does that mean and when does that happen? And as you say, as a teacher, I mean, I've been in education my whole career. So I went to school, went to university, went back to school. And we have these uh, lives in which our whole life is these compartmentalised blocks, terms, weeks, days, lesson times, recess and lunch, you know, we still talk about. And it is really that that we understand the absolute intensity of a particular day. Teachers, especially primary teachers, but also people with lots of meetings learn not to go to the bathroom because there's no time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was like that when I was in the classroom. Yeah. We have to be intentional. But it's habit changing, isn't it? It's actually changing your entire way of being in the day and the week to somehow carve those things out. It is. Yep. Yeah, I mean, what I do in my workshops when I work with individuals and with schools is uh, we have a work recovery assessment so that people can look at those four experiences, but they can also look at the four time, the holidays, the weekends, the evenings and the, the working day. And they can identify what they need to change most. And I recommend you don't ever try to change more than two things because it's too much. And, you know, then we look at ways in which that can be done. And you do need to be intentional. And it is about changing habits. And if if people have not read it, I recommend Atomic mm. Habits. It's a great book for understanding the psychology of habit forming and changing habits. But we do need to do that. You know, for example, at the moment, every afternoon when I'm 
starting to feel a little bit fatigued, I'll put my headphones on. I have uh, some favorite people on YouTube. They're called the Honest Guys. And he has this beautiful, smooth voice. And he does these visualizations. And uh, I put my headphones on and for half an hour or, you know, sometimes only 20 minutes, I listen to that. And that's just so simple, but it does have an effect on me. I also make sure that I go out and have a walk in nature, you know, at least once a day, but sometimes on a good day, two or three times. And my mindset and my well-being is transformed just by those simple things. And so many, particularly head teachers that I've worked with in the last couple of years, have put these routines in place that they now have come to rely upon and understand and can recognize and monitor how their sense of well-being changes when they let their routine slide. And so we have to have a routine of self-care. And one of the things I say in my book is that for school leaders, but this applies for everyone who works in schools, we need to start thinking of self, self-care as being a desirable attribute. For leaders, self-care should be seen of as a desirable leadership attribute and it should be encouraged by leaders, by governors, by whoever it is who's responsible for running schools, you know, uh, local government inspectors or whatever. What I'm not saying, Deb, is that the owners should all be on self-care. The research shows that absolutely is not the case. The owners should be primarily on those organisational level changes. But this self-care is something individuals have control of and it needs to be encouraged and time and information around it needs to be provided so that it's it's supported. And it also sounds like there's almost an onus on senior leaders to walk the talk of this and show that things like taking time, taking micro breaks, switching off from work, that those things are accepted and an important part of the school and that they're doing it and they expect others to do it. Absolutely. You know, I talk about middle leaders. If senior leaders can model this behaviour to middle leaders, middle leaders are likely to have more impact because they are the ones that are working on a day-to-day basis with their teams. And so if middle leaders can have permission, you know, as it were, to be encouraged to model these behaviours to their teams, then we start to change the the landscape in school where self-care becomes, um, you know, I I want to be very careful about the language that I use in saying Mm. self-care becomes an expectation because I want to go back to the research shows that, you know, poor well-being in schools is primarily caused. It's not. It's not. And, you know, so I... I'm very careful not to give the impression that it's all about self-care. But, mm. prov- but as as a component of a whole package, providing staff with information about work recovery and providing opportunities for those micro breaks. You know, what a wonderful thing I always wanted in my last school. And we talked about how great it would be if we could have a quiet room where people could go to just to take five minutes. They could read a book. They could listen to something on their headphones they could sit and meditate they could just be silent you know uh, unfortunately it was in Hong Kong where space is always at a premium and we didn't have any physical space but I know other schools have provided this in the same way that they provide timeout rooms for students to go to when they're feeling frazzled if we could just provide a room where people can go to to sit in silence for five minutes 
that could have a huge impact. It also shows staff that you care about them. You know, something as simple as that could make a big difference. And that's a way in which we are supporting work recovery rather than placing the onus of work recovery on the individual and giving the impression that it's all about self-care when it really isn't. It's a 20 percent. I'm just saying that off the top of my head. Mm. But my gut feeling from the work that I do is self-care is about 20 percent. Yeah. Such important work. But we're coming to the end of our time together and so I'm going to move us to what I like to call the enlightening round, our final five questions. The first of which is, what is something unexpected that people might not know about you? Well, I've got two. One is work-related, one's not work-related. So I experienced an occupational burnout myself in 2019. So when we were talking at the beginning about all the different experiences I bring to the table, I can also, you know, I experienced that firsthand. The non-work-related one is much more fun. I've travelled as a pillion on the back of a motorcycle in more than 50 countries. Wow, more than 50 (laughs) countries. Yeah. (laughs) They say on the back of a motorcycle, not on the front. Yeah, my husband rides, not on the front, no. Big motorcycle, can't touch the ground. (laughs) Fantastic. That sounds like a whole other conversation about adventures around the world. It is. So what about something, Helen, that is currently on your desk? Okay, well, that's interesting because you can't tell from the background, but actually I'm currently in my motorhome, so there isn't. I don't have a desk. So at the moment I'm in Ireland. We're in the process of buying a new house here and uh, we're spending the summer living in our motorhome, waiting for the sale to go through so I don't have a desk so I'm actually you archetypal digital nomad at the moment that sounds great great not to have a desk who is someone that inspires you <laughs> in the work that you do yeah it's um probably quite different to the things that other people say I'm actually most inspired by the kind of founders of the labor movement going back about 200 years, who really first did that initial work to improve the welfare of workers. And, you know, the work that I did when I was a solicitor in the 1990s was very much connected to that, working as part of the trade union movement. And so I really feel a deep connection to that to provide the best for people in the workplace. No one should have to go into their workplace and be harmed by it. Wow, that is really interesting, that sort of historic (laughs) tradition of looking after the worker that sort of carries through from your early career and even before that to now. Yeah, absolutely. What is one thing that you've got coming up that you're excited about? I have a business trip to Dubai at the beginning of June. And what's exciting about that is that I'm going to be working with principals plus uh, staff and parent representatives in an organisation that has 43 schools So I'm going to be meeting representatives from all of those schools. So it's an opportunity to have an impact right across a large organisation that supports tens of thousands of students. So that's really exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. It sounds fantastic and great to see the reach that your work is having. I'm sure it's resonating all over the world. And so if you were to distill your current thinking about education or perhaps educator wellbeing to its essence, what is one thought or resource, your book obviously, (laughs) that you would leave listeners with? Yeah, I want to come back to what I said earlier, Deb, which is that poor workplace well-being is not an issue of the individual. It's primarily an issue of the workplace and it needs to be dealt with at the organisational level in order to be most effective. It needs to be dealt with in a strategic way. And those, you know, piecemeal things that we do, the, you know, the cakes in the staff room and, um, 
the yoga classes. I used to teach yoga to my own staff after school and it was great. But um, it, it has to be much more than that. It has to be strategic. It has to be at the organisational level and understanding that what works in one school doesn't work necessarily in another school. So those, those are the most important things that I've learned in the last few years. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Helen, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Deb. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.